What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. How long do we have the studio tonight, Adam? With the last echo of the last bell, at the last stroke of midnight, the spell will be broken and all will return to what it was before. Midnight. Hmm? Midnight. That's more than enough time. Is it weird that we're wearing the same gown, Josh? Let's just be careful with these glass microphones. Before the clock strikes midnight, Josh and I will share our review of Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella with Kate Blanchett. Plus, this week's top five movies about royalty. Also, first round results of film spotting madness. All that and more. How are your two girls, Anastasia and Drizella, Josh? Ahead on film spotting. Cinderella, Cinderella, night and day at Cinderella. Spotting is pleased to once again be presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. This week over at Mubi, you'll find two comic shorts by Ted Fent, an up-and-coming American indie filmmaker from New York. He's a frequent contributor as a critic and translator for Mubi's online film magazine, Notebook. He's premiering a new short film at the New Director's New Films Festival in New York this month, and Mubi's celebrating by showing two droll, deadpan comedies, both shot on 16mm broken specs and travel plans. Also, Tatsumi. Last week, the great Japanese manga artist Yoshihiro Tatsumi passed away, and Mubi's going to pay its respects to him with this animated biography of the artist growing up in post-war occupied Japan. It was an official selection of the Cannes Film Festival back in 2011. Last week on Mubi, they showed Pusher from Denmark's Nicholas Winding Refn. So they're going to continue that with Bronson. That featured a star-making turn from Tom Hardy, and it is a wild one that yeah. I can recommend. Everyday Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and you get that for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash film spotting to redeem now again try movie free for a month by going to movie.com slash film spotting that's m-u-b-i.com slash film spotting You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam, and if you're a regular Film Spotting listener, it's possible that you have no interest whatsoever in all the talk about brackets and bracket busters and bracketology that accompany March Madness and the NCAA basketball tournament. Well, our apologies. Film Spotting Madness is in full swing. 32 actors. Only one survives to act another day. It's a lot more fun. Trust me. Yeah, I think so. We've got first round results later in the show, along with your round two matchups. Chicago boy Michael Shannon. You did make it to the Sweet 16, but you've got your work cut out for you in round two. All of that coming just a little bit later in the show, along with our top five movies about royalty. But first, just for fun, I created my own NCAA-style bracket for all the Disney princesses. Guess who won? Cinderella. I want to tell you a secret that will see you through all the trials that life can offer. Have courage and be kind. You'll merely be your stepmother, and you'll have two lovely sisters to keep you company. So I'll know as far away as I may be that you'll be safe. Wouldn't you prefer to eat when all the work is done, Ella? Yes, stepmother. Oh, you needn't call me that. Madam will do. 
Cinder wench. Dirty Ella. <laughs> Cinderella. <laughs> Whether westerns, noirs, or fairy tales, truth be told, Josh, I've always feared that the reason critics, okay, I confess, mainly the reason I, seem to go so crazy for just about anything that allows me to invoke the R word, revisionist, isn't that they're all so inherently well-made or thought-provoking, but simply that they generate something for me to talk about or write about. Who doesn't love eating up a few paragraphs or minutes of airtime with some juicy comparing and contrasting to other classic movies? Even juicier, perhaps, who doesn't love having their thesis handed to them on a platter before they even sit down to toil on their review, rather than struggle to concoct one as they go? From ABC's Once Upon a Time to Mirror Mirror to the ubiquitous Frozen to last year's Maleficent, these days you pretty much have to go back to the original source material not to consume some form of fairy tale revisionism. Maleficent, starring Angelina Jolie, so cast its spell on you, Josh, that it ended up among your top 10 films of 2014. How about that? For several reasons. But key among them was how it, quote, revises to a purpose. What we come to know through Maleficent is that the Sleeping Beauty legend still functions as a potent moral tale, this time with a particular awareness of patriarchal oppression. Evil here is born of, then visited upon, rapacious men. Rapacious. I love it when I get a chance to use that word. Well done. That's a strong (laughs) thesis there, Josh. You can probably see where I'm going with all of this. Is this going to be our shortest review ever? I mean, whatever are we going to say about director Kenneth Branagh's take on Cinderella when, at first glance anyway, there seems to be no take at all? Just a straightforward, mostly-by-the-book piece of live-action fantasy that's as sweet and earnest as its heroine, played by Downton Abbey's Lily James. Fairy godmother, friendly mice, fat pumpkin that transforms into a carriage, you bet. Evil stepmother, Kate Blanchett, awful stepsisters, charming prince, glass slippers, check, 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 and check. Well... Your humble narrator is here to report that this setup does have a happy ending. Despite, or possibly because of, its surprisingly conventional approach, Cinderella has managed to provoke a little bit of disdain. Vulture's Libby Hill writes, One of the main takeaways from the film is to have courage and be kind, no matter what the circumstances. While that's all well and good for some circumstances, the film itself seems to gloss over the part where, at some point, you have to stand up for yourself. And this from film spotting favorite Tasha Robinson. But as Chris White's screenplay expresses it, with plenty of treacle and not a smidgen of nuance, being good and kind means being weak and simple. Josh, do Tasha and Libby's Anastasia and Drizella esque attacks on Cinderella carry any weight with you? And minus the R word, has your critical voice been muzzled, or might there be just a little revisionism actually hiding somewhere in the attic of this movie? Up there with Cinderella. Exactly. There's not much revisionism going on here, but that struck me as okay. And yeah, as you pointed out, I'm someone who eats that stuff up lately when it comes to fairy tales in particular. I think I wasn't aware of those two detractions of the film. I think from what I've seen, they're probably in the minority. And the reason is maybe less to do with their arguments. Those sound a little strong, at least compared to the movie that I saw. I think there's some tweaking here we can get into that makes this more than just an acquiescence to the old traditional fairy tales and any problems they might have had. Primarily, people are embracing this film for the reasons you talked about. It's old-fashionedness, it's traditional nature, it's earnestness. And maybe what we can say is, for a lot of us, me included, sounds like you as well, This just came at the right time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this had come 10, 15 years ago before the revisionism 
fervor began if we would have even noticed it much. It would just have been another one of those. But in this wake of these alternate takes, whether it's putting some sort of feminist spin on a tale or twisting the idea of hero and villain, we're getting a lot of that now. You get something like this that's just on its face, reminds you of what, maybe not the original fairy tales, mm -hmm. not the Grimm's tales for sure, but the Disney animated tales tried to tap into, does it in a slightly updated way. It feels good. It feels yeah. refreshing. It feels like something you shouldn't resist. So why resist it? And I didn't feel the need to pick it apart either and say that it's not nailing every political or politically correct mm -hmm. nuance right it's not problematic that way. I guess you could say, if we want to start there, it is almost dangerous in the harmlessness it seems to present these ideas of the damsel in distress. It makes them go down pretty smoothly here. But at the same time, it allows just enough of those little tweaks, I think very much in Lily James' performance, especially in how she's flirty and feisty with the prince, played by Richard Madden. I think those scenes have a very different tenor than, say, the animated Cinderella does. For sure. And I think that matters just enough to make this... Nicely traditional while still relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you completely on this movie. Maybe in a way it was almost refreshing in just how conventional it was. I don't know what I expected. I didn't go in with really any expectations. I do remember loving the original Cinderella when I was a kid, but haven't seen it since then. It's not even a movie I revisited with my kids recently. So I really was coming to this pretty fresh. And look, we only heard a couple lines there. Tasha has a very lengthy argument that I haven't even fully finished over at the Dissolve. And we'll link to that in our show notes if you're curious. But you can't watch this movie and not see some validity in it because Cinderella is abused for a good part of this movie, and her response is to consistently turn the other cheek. But I'm genuinely a little surprised to read things like, at some point you have to stand up for yourself, and weak and simple, or to use the critical buzzword right now, that she lacks agency. I go to one of the scenes you mentioned, Josh, right away, a key scene in the movie, her first encounter with the prince, who she doesn't know is a prince. They're out hunting. He gets separated from his group. She sees a stag go by that clearly they're chasing, and she tries to help it along to get out of there before they find it. She shows no fear at all except for the animal and the animal's safety. She doesn't hesitate. She doesn't back down an inch from her stance. She doesn't know that he's the prince. She treats him like any other person, and she's really in control, I would say, for that entire scene. Also, we can go to others, and I won't get into it too much, but the final confrontation in this film between her and the evil stepmother, I don't see anything weak and simple about that either, when there certainly could have been had she chosen to go that route. I have to wonder, too, if the Cinderella in this movie is weak and simple because she seems content to just take all that abuse she's given. She never fights back. She's never selfish. She never imposes her will on anyone else. Well, you know who does constantly throughout this movie? Her complete opposites, the sisters, Anastasia and Drizella. So I have to wonder, you know, their lack of agency doesn't come from anything but sheer stupidity. It's not will. It's just that they're not very bright. Are they better role models? Are they stronger female characters? I don't think I would argue that, probably. So for me, what's provocative about this Cinderella, so far as it goes, and what I do think is really compelling, do you like Lily James's performance as Cinderella? I think she's probably the reason this movie works, I agree. to be honest with I agree. You. I think she really is. And it's the way it makes every one of her responses to her mistreatment 
seem like a choice. I think that's a really key part of this performance. It's not so much, we've referenced this already. This, She's very thoughtful. This line, yeah, this notion of having courage and be kind that her passing mother passes on to her. It's not that so much that we really see play out throughout the course of the movie. It's have the courage to be kind. And you see that courage, I think, in her performance. You see it in those silent rebukes she gives when she does accept a certain punishment she's been given. She's not passive and weak. She's just choosing to live by a code that prevents her from doing what every human's base instinct is to do when faced with a situation like these. Lash out, strike back, hate. And I honestly found it challenging as a viewer to be faced with that type of, this is maybe too grandiose, but that type of grace. It's certainly not how I was reacting when I was imagining myself in her shoes sitting in the theater. And I do think it is a credit, again, to James, that it would have been so easy to play her beatifically and boringly, perhaps. But there's a series of emotions that registers on her face in all of these cases. You see a process by which she ends up where she ends up. It's not simply, I'm a saint. I'm going to sit back and accept this. I don't see that on her face at all. I certainly don't see anything weak or simple about her. Where do you live, Mr. Kitt? At the palace. My father's teaching me his trade. You're an apprentice? Of a sort. That's very fine. Do they, do they treat you well? Oh, better than I deserve, most likely. And you? They treat me as well as they're able. I'm sorry. It's not your doing. Nor yours either, I'll bet. It's not so very bad. Others, others have it worse, I'm sure. We must simply have courage and be kind, mustn't we? Yes. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Well, what's also something that's often mistaken for weakness when, in fact, requires a huge amount of strength is forgiveness. And how does she end her relationship with Cate Blanchett? I mean, it's it's a simple line. I forgive yeah. you, which is just so it's it's a toss away in a lot of ways. But also, as you're saying, goes counter to the way we expect our heroes. Sure. I mean, do, at this point, do we really need another warrior archer princess? No. I mean, I think I'm glad that girls or boys for that matter are given those figures nowadays but that doesn't mean that every princess has to follow that pattern that's one of the things i really liked about brave which does feature an archer princess but mm -hmm. also incorporates something like sewing into its climax and kind of has is playing both sides of that coin and so i think lily james here does strike this balancing act where um, she is guileless but you never sense that she's naive again she's making choices as you mentioned she is very soft-hearted but i would not describe her as sentimental mm -hmm. uh, in essence she's she's undoubtedly feminine but she's not any the weaker for it that the way she's feminine is a form of strength for her mm -hmm. for me so beyond getting bogged down in, in how does she stand against all the other princesses there were a lot of other things i did like about this film as well james is probably at the forefront blanchette is certainly there but she's connected to one of these elements the way she models the dresses in this film i mean the costume design here by sandy powell is just unbelievable, especially as the stepmother Blanchett's clothes. They All of them have this animalistic touch. I That's think they're true. primarily green. There's a lot of scaly Yeah, there's a certain-like quality to it. Yeah, and some of them have uh, feathers and plumes, and each one 
you know, Blanchett on the red carpet at the Oscars almost every year is one of those who gets the most attention because she knows how to model. And that's partly what the performance is here. Now, I also like how she brings some gentle humor to the role. I love that deep throaty laugh she has. Mm-hmm. This woman wants to be this uh, a member of royalty, even though she's not. But she betrays herself when she lets that kind of awkward laugh go out and her evil comes out there. So I think that's a really good role. Uh, James gets, of course, I mean, they've got to do the Cinderella dress at the ballroom has to be something iconic and man do they come through here with something that it just it it seems to move with a Mm -hmm. life of its own it just never ends as it flows along and and uh, these are again traditional elements but if you're going to do them do them well and that's absolutely what they do here this is a film where you can talk about a number of the creative people involved from sandy powell the costume designer to dante ferretti the production designer before you even get to someone like the director kenneth Branagh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he it's it's an old-fashioned studio picture in a lot of ways where all of those elements really come into play to create this sumptuous Vision And Rana, of course, does a great job of orchestrating it all. I bet he's probably crucial to getting these good, delicate performances Mm -hmm. out of people who are playing iconic characters, being an actor himself. And it all just comes together for something that's really sweet and earnest and enjoyable. You're listening to Say Yes to the Dress with Adam and Josh here. (laughs) Actually, it's film spotting. We're talking Cinderella. How was my audition for next year's Red Carpet Fashion Police? Do, I, you think I can't I can get believe on how well you did. All right. Good. I think you're a lot. I hear there's an opening. Yeah, so. Kathy Griffin just left yeah, something. I think yeah. maybe you can get on that show. Yes. Josh, you alluded to it. I'll just breeze by this. But her final line of dialogue, what she says to Kate Blanchett's evil stepmother character, the only real misstep in this film for you me. didn't the like the only groaner. Oh, man. Another case where talk about something I didn't need to hear that a simple look and a turning away would have expressed and expressed it better and with more complexity. And it did take her then from being just this good-hearted, innocent, but smart woman into someone who then became this paragon of virtue, lording okay, it over okay. everyone around her. I but hated that line. Here's hated it. where I give the get-out-of-jail-free car for on-the-noseness to a film is okay. when its primary audience... I want to know. Uh, yes, this is an occasion. Its primary audience is young children. Okay. I keep that in mind. And Now, that's not to I say... I forgave other things I, in this I, film for that, okay. too. I, did. And I, I think like too many kids' films are disrespectful of their audience's intelligence. So I'm not saying that kids' films always need to dumb it down. Please, we've got plenty of that. But in this case, for an instance where it's building up to this moment of you just want the stepmother to have it, to kind of of really Uh. give that moment, especially for kids in the audience, to to have it hit home, I'm okay with it. But it is... It is obvious. Yeah, and one of the things I forgave thinking about the audience is this is a movie with... A lot of talking in it. It's not necessarily your conventional kind of kids, goofy, silly action movie. Manic. It's not manic at all. It's very grown up, I would say. And maybe just to give a little bit of a nod to some of those kids out there who Brenna was worrying might be nodding off, you get things like the protracted race away from the castle at midnight that seems to go on for 20 minutes where we get everything transforming all the the lizards you know go back into lizards i I was terrified she was going to get stuck in the pumpkin (laughs) i thought that worked great it kept getting smaller and smaller and i was like how's she going to get out of there yeah i I, you were a little claustrophobic well maybe that's it too. too and somehow that didn't strike me but that was a case where i thought 
we're getting a little bit of action here. We're getting a little bit of that manic energy that I didn't really need. And I don't know if it's there or not. I haven't seen the Cinderella, the Disney animated version in so long, really, honestly, in its entirety, probably since I was I'm six or seven sure years a old. Similar scene yeah, I didn't one. know if it was that drawn out or not. But that was the kind of thing in the moment I thought, OK, I'm getting a little bit bored of this. This is kind of tedious. And then I sort of realized, well, my 10 year old daughter sitting next to me is probably enjoying it a little bit more than I do. Back to this idea of revisionism, though, if it's not capital R revisionist, and I would say it's certainly not, there are still, based on what I know, tell me if I'm wrong here, based on my remembrance of the movie, there are still changes to the material that I think really strengthen it dramatically and help strengthen Ella as a character. As we meet her, she is called Ella, only later as a nickname do they dub her Cinderella. And those two go hand in hand because... I don't know if you agree, Josh, but this whole notion of strong characters, strong female characters, I think, regardless of the gender, they're important, not just because of some need to fill this political correctness, but because they're more interesting dramatically. We want to see strong characters on screen. And one of the changes they make that helps out a lot is giving Prince Charming a name. I don't think they ever call him Prince Charming. Actually, we meet him as Kit. What a brilliant idea. It is a brilliant idea. No, you're he, right, he you're pretends right. that he's just a regular person. He actually says he's an apprentice. He's not sure how she'll react to him if she finds out that he's actually the prince. So he keeps playing the game that he is just Kit the Apprentice. And the movie makes it very clear that while she's probably romantically interested in him, and I don't know about you, but as much as I liked the scene where they first meet, I did feel like it was a little too sensual, maybe for its own good, as those horses surrounded each other, they got closer together, and the way Lily James turned her performance into almost this panting kind of, she got a little bit worked up there for a girl who has been sheltered her whole life, you know, and maybe well, that's why she reacts the way she yeah. does. The crowd I was with said there there was an awful lot of cleavage in this movie as there, well yeah. for PG, so maybe you're on to something there. was, there. but there was, there was really a sense that this encounter was going to go somewhere. Get a little too hot and heavy, huh? Yeah, I thought so. But <laughs> it's clear that it's just as likely she's interested in seeing him again because he's a potential friend. That's really what she's drawn to more than anything, as much as she may, in fact, be attracted to him. And she does go to the ball. The movie makes a very fine point of this. She goes to the ball not to potentially woo a prince like her stepsisters, but merely to see the man she thinks is just an apprentice, to see this friend. So I think that's really important. And again, it helps give him some personality, makes him not just this figurehead, and then it makes us understand why Ella would be drawn to him. Another thing is the Blanchett character, the evil stepmother, where you get a little bit of what I understand Maleficent definitely tries to do in terms of giving us that other perspective. You get a little sense of it here. It doesn't go overboard, but this notion that comes out that she's a little bit of a victim herself. She's not merely being evil, but she's hardened herself after experiencing some suffering on her own. And I do think that little touch is important to us understanding what's motivating her. All the motivations of the characters throughout this film, I think, are pretty well expressed. And her best moment, I think Blanche's best moment in the film, is that look after seeing Ella and her father in the study. And it's not a case like you think it's going to be where she mishears something or misunderstands something or overreacts to what she hears. She sees it exactly as what it is, this touching tender moment between a father and a daughter but what she sees is that this man will never love her like he loved his first wife she's nor, her real place yeah, nor will he ever love her as much as he loves his daughter 
She's fighting an unwinnable battle, so she resigns herself to being harsh and cruel. And she's going to take what she wants and what she needs from this world rather than hoping she'll get it. So just those little touches that inform her a little bit, just as it informs the prince and makes him a full character, a full-bodied character. I think that's what really made this film, for me, not just another cartoon brought to life, not just another fairy tale, but is something I actually felt like I was invested in. There's a great line that speaks to that. And I think the the storybook narration here, which is, you know, an expected element of these films. And so I give it a little bit of a pass, not always loving extensive voiceovers. But if you're going to do it and you sort of have to hear Chris White's screenplay comes up with some pretty nice lines. And one of them speaking to that is, and this is talking about the stepmother, she too knew grief, but she wore it wonderfully well. Mm -hmm. And that just captures it. And we're back to the dresses. Yeah, that's right. I do think that the true failing of the Cinderella character, if there is one, is something Tasha mentions. And I don't know if she really gets into it or not, but it's in one of the lines that follows a line from hers that I read, where after being weak and simple, she argues, she says, worse as the story progresses, it means separation from even the simplest, mildest ambition. I've addressed the passivity. I don't think that's really a genuine issue with this film. But ambition is a little bit of a problem because as a modern viewer, the hardest thing to believe, even in a movie with talking mice and fairy godmothers, is that any character this age, man or woman, not only doesn't have any ambition, really, she doesn't seem to aspire to be or to do anything at all. You really, at some point, are wondering... What's keeping her here? What does she long for, really? What does she want from life? What does she see herself being? And I think not having answers to those questions then starts to reduce some of the things that the movie does otherwise to make her interesting. And the screenplay does cover it a little bit. Chris White's, I'm glad he throws this in here because it did hold me over for a while. He says that she stays at home, basically, and puts up this abuse because the house reminds her of her parents. And they loved this house, so as long as she's here and taking care of it, it's like she's with them or paying tribute to them. But watching Ella, I couldn't help but think how it's one thing to accept your situation if you don't have any other options. It's another thing entirely to not even consider that you might have other options. She just seems oblivious. This fairy tale movie needs her to be oblivious to the world outside her. And that works in a lot of fairy tales or in a lot of cartoons, broader stroke fairy tales, where we're not looking for much nuance. But in this movie that, as I've said multiple times, goes to some lengths to humanize its characters and not have them be one dimensional. That's where it fails a little bit and not really addressing that. That's something, though, that I think a screenwriter somewhere down the road is going to tackle. There may be a future capital R revisionist movie version of Cinderella, but that's what they'd have to really address is why Cinderella just seems content to just be Cinderella living in her house and not do anything. So you're saying this Cinderella is Francis Ha? Weren't we having a this discussion about ambition <laughs> just last characters. week? She had no ambitions. Yeah. And, and is that necessarily a terrible <laughs> thing? So it didn't bother me too much. Okay. Well, I thought I would express it anyway, Josh. That is Cinderella. It is out now in wide release. Big hit at the box office. If you see it or have seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, tell us what you thought. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam and I will play out a modern fairy tale of sorts in Massacre Theater up next, then announce the Sweet 16 in Film Spotting Madness. Mia Vasakovska, we hardly knew you. Stay with us.
very pleased to have Squarespace back on board as a supporter of Film Spotting. They are the all-in-one website platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. And since the last promotion we did for them about a month ago. The testimonials have been coming in from Film Spotting listeners who love the Squarespace tool. We love mentioning those testimonials and doing a little promotion for their websites. Why don't you share this feedback from listener David Olson? I wanted to thank you guys for turning me on to Squarespace and share with you the glory that is my personal website. Well, I can almost hear the cynical moan Orson Welles would unleash from the depths of his gut if he knew that in 2015, aspiring screenwriters were creating websites for themselves. Well, such are the times in which we live. That said, I couldn't be happier with the results of my page. Squarespace didn't just make building my site easy. It actually made the process fun. Now, when I to meetings in LA with agents and producers, I can confidently direct them to my Squarespace page, which serves as the perfect tool to reflect my personality and writing style. And they can pat me on the back and pretend like they're actually going to check it out. <laughs> the link there is davidjolson.com. Olson with two O's. Squarespace offers beautiful templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and a feature called Cover Pages, and all Squarespace sites feature responsive design, so your site looks great on any device and comes with a free online store. They offer 24-7 live chat and email support if you're having any issues whatsoever. For a free trial with no credit card required and to start building your website today, just go to squarespace.com and enter the code FILM for a special offer. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Young men don't think you can't be fooled. The day they picked me up, December 21st. They took me upstairs, what floor, I don't know, they, but they put me in a little room. Gus Rose walked in. He had a confession there he wanted me to sign. He uh, said that I would sign it. He didn't give a damn what I said. I would sign this piece of paper he's got. I told him I couldn't. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Randall Adams there, the subject of the 1988 Errol Morris documentary, The Thin Blue Line. Josh, we wanted to take a moment to highlight The Thin Blue Line, as well as a couple of other influential early Errol Morris documentaries, because coming out this Tuesday, March 24th, they will be released in new special edition Blu-rays. These are Criterion Collection Editions. You know Criterion always does a great job. And we're going to get back to the Thin Blue Line in a second. I actually want to start where Errol Morris started, which is Gates of Heaven. They're releasing his docs, Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, in a two-disc set. And Gates of Heaven is a film that focuses on two different Southern California pet cemeteries and really becomes this fascinating look at some of these personalities that take their pets there, that work the grounds, whoever is connected in some way with it, but really becomes a larger exploration, I think, of a lot of different things, including just what happens to us when we go, what are we doing with the time we have here, a lot of just big, profound questions I think the movie does tackle in an interesting way. The new special edition version of Gates of Heaven includes a 2K restoration of the film, supervised by Morris. There's a new interview with Morris, and also you do get Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, the 1980 documentary, 20-minute film by Les Blank, featuring Herzog fulfilling a bet he made where he was trying to inspire Errol Morris to complete the movie. He'd eat his shoe, and you see on camera after he makes this movie, he does actually eat that shoe. So Gates of Heaven, a film that was discussed here on Film Spotting as part of our documentary marathon many years ago. And it was a movie I was really taken with, less so 
with Vernon, Florida. And I was hoping to rewatch Vernon, Florida before we sat down here tonight and didn't have time. But I reexamined Gates of Heaven as part of my tribute to Roger Ebert class last summer at the University of Chicago's Graham School. And we also watched scenes from it in my Cinema Verite, The Problem of Truth class a couple summers before that. And Gates of Heaven became on rewatch an essential film for me. Not just a really good film, an essential film. I was hoping you'd get a chance to catch up with it before we sat down here tonight to talk about it. And you did. What did you think? You're so right about it being not so much about the pet cemetery business or anything like that. I almost got the sense that you could drop Errol Morris anywhere. And as long as he could find eight to 10 people to put in front of the camera, he'd get a fascinating movie about yeah. it because it's really the this is as you said these people are all circling around this industry i guess if you'd call it that some of them are customers some of them are owners most interestingly you mentioned one of them in our top five fringe characters last week these brothers mm-hmm. who kind of fall back into the family pet cemetery yeah, business because they haven't been able to find success elsewhere and he gives each person the time the framing the actual aesthetics of this film were very interesting so that they are allowed to tell their story, how they see fit and where that story leads. He He's not trying to place them all within a theme no. that Gates of Heaven is going to ruminate on. He's just allowing these people the space to talk and letting them tell their stories. Now, there's going to be a part of performance to that. They're putting on a version of themselves, obviously, but these are lengthy monologue scenes. He's not looking for sound bites. He's letting them meander their way towards what they really want to share. Now, we could talk about, and you having seen more of his films than me, uh, I don't have a handle on this yet, is how much intervention there really is behind the scenes. Form, formally, it seems like there's very little from from the main fact that he puts them mostly in the center of the screen. Mm-hmm. Very straightforward. We get the sense. But you know that there is a lot of decision making going on. He's in, the editor as well. Yeah. And a crucial part of Gates of Heaven is the juxtaposition between who follows what interview and what topic. There's a lot of wry humor that comes out of that. And so I'm trying to get a grip a little bit about how much... Um, manipulation, not in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, but just why there would it is, Well, it's just an interesting question for me always mm-hmm. when it comes to documentaries it is how are these objective sequences being shaped? Yeah. That, that's one of the questions I like to think about and explore. And usually you need to watch a documentarian's, a number of their films before you get a sense really of how that works. And and, and in this case, yeah, it just held me transfixed by, by these individual people and their individual stories. Well, there's certainly a lot of artifice to it. I mean, you mentioned the framing, the lighting, the fact that it's shot on a tripod. That's not what a lot of documentaries were doing at the time. The fact that it doesn't, and we'll get to this with the thin blue line, include really any reenactments, though it doesn't right. need to, but a lot of documentaries do. It doesn't purport to be getting at really any kind of objective truth. But he really that, is shaping the story. To, to me, though, all of those clear formal choices mm-hmm. seem designed, or at least the effect they had on me, is to give this impression of objectivity. Mm. Because I don't think the so at all. I think it's the exact opposite. For me, the reenactments are clear shaping because you have a reenactment here it's as simple as i'm just putting the camera down mm-hmm. i'm going to let you talk mm. and no, but there's see, not a lot of fussing yeah, going but, on but it's exactly the opposite because actually he's directly responding to the kind of stuff we've been talking about a little bit recently including on our last show with albert mazels and that direct cinema those are the films that purported to be capturing life as it unfolded by we're just going to be a fly on the wall there's no sense of there being a fly on the wall he's 
directly interviewing these people. Sure. And he is being very deliberate in how he's shooting them. He's setting up a stage. There's staging to this. So it, it's in stark contrast, I think, very much by design to not come off as one of those films that is suggesting, well, I'm just capturing something that would be happening anyway, and they have no sense hmm. that I'm here. They know the camera's there, yeah. and they are performing for it. So that's something I think he's very cognizant of. And the interview that is featured on the DVD with Morris is about 20 minutes long, and I've been able to get my hands on a copy of the Criterion edition that's coming out, and it's great, obviously, highly recommended. And his interview is really good. He tells a story about meeting one of his cinematic heroes, Douglas Sirk, when he's like 80 years old at the Berlin Film Festival. He's showing Gates of Heaven. And Sirk actually walked out of the movie at some point. And when he talked to him later, he told him that it wasn't cinema. It was just a slideshow. Hmm. Which I thought was fascinating because I don't think I mentioned this on air, but I've taught now, I think, at least six classes, either by myself or co-taught, five or six classes at the University of Chicago. And we've watched some difficult movies. And I know I've told you about this off air, but we've watched some films that are long and challenging and sometimes vulgar if you want to look at it that way i could see how an audience member someone sitting there who really isn't sure what they've gotten themselves into being taken aback by it and saying why am i watching this no one's ever walked out i've never had a student leave a movie i opened the roger ebert tribute class with gates of heaven because ebert went crazy for this film and was a huge champion of it and someone walked out halfway through someone walked out and i thought okay i get it because i put myself in their shoes and i really thought to myself Imagine you're coming into this class. This particular student didn't know who I was, had never listened to film spotting before, didn't know who Errol Morris was. They were just coming to a film class. And of all the films to start with, you start with this very weird movie, Gates of Heaven. It is. I can see someone being taken aback by it. Now, what's interesting is I thought she got up and left because it was just too weird. And it wasn't for her. And she didn't even want to hear. I couldn't believe she didn't even want to hear the discussion afterwards. She was like, nope, I'm done. And I thought I'd never see that student again, wouldn't come back for the second class. This was an older woman, maybe someone in her 60s. And she did come back for the second class. And we started the class by going back and spending a few more minutes on Morris. And she raised her hand and said she got up and left because it offended her. It bothered her. She thought that the director, Morris, was ridiculing these characters and making them out to be absurd. And that's another funny thing, Josh, that comes up in the interview with Morris. He says, I got so tired of people asking me if I'm ridiculing these characters that I finally would just say, yep, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yep, I'm just making fun of them. But he said the real answer, the more forgiving answer, as he put it, is just he loves the absurd. He loves the absurd. And that's what you see throughout this film. And Herzog's a big influence on him. You can see that play out as well over the course of this movie. That's the sense I got as well. And that's another concern of mine when it comes to documentaries. Speaking of Maisel's Grey Gardens, I had some issues about not that they were making fun of the mother and daughter there, but just the opportunistic element of it. That didn't bother me at all here with gates of heaven i would actually describe the movie as extremely generous towards its subjects i would too but i think i i might have an idea of what she's getting at in a way by not going after that soundbite where some documentarians will catch their subjects like i've got and and then take it out of context and and make it serve their theme what morris seems to do here is by allowing these to be running monologues i found that to be generous it gives Absolutely. some control to the people but i can also see how someone might take that as you're waiting for the people to hang themselves hmm. because these are unusual characters, not the sort of people we'd maybe come across every day. Right. And that's part of their, that's why they're interesting 
because yes. they're unique. Uh, so at the same time, though, I, I can see how it didn't strike me that way, but I can understand that reading. Plus, this is a movie that has a woman, a, a scene of a woman singing with her dog. Yeah, that's <laughs> so absurd. That, that's already, you know, you how do you do that and, and not seem to be smirking or laughing at the subject? I think Gates of Heaven pulls it off. I really do. Yeah. Because in context with how it's treating the other subjects, I think it works. But but I completely understand how it might strike someone that way. Well, here's the question. I don't think that's an absurd reaction is what I'm saying. No, it's not an absurd reaction, but here's what I always ask myself. And that is, and of course, I don't know this. This is just my sense of it. And that is, if you asked all of the people who appear in Gates of Heaven, including the woman singing with her dog, how they felt about how they were depicted in the movie, my sense watching Gates of Heaven is they'd watch and say, yeah, that's me. That's exactly who I am. I don't think anyone would watch that film and think, wow, Errol Morris hung me out to dry. Yeah, I think you're probably right. He, I think he you're made probably me right. Look silly. No, that's that's who they are. And he's a good listener. That's yes. his ultimate strength as Absolutely. a documentarian. And he's talked about that. And you he can knows when to shut that. up. He knows that it's always going to be more interesting to let the subjects talk and say whatever they want to express rather than him inserting himself into it. That's what I mean about him being able to be dropped anywhere and get some interesting Yeah, I think that's a great point. So... That's out, again, this Tuesday, March 24th. Obviously, we both highly recommend it. Vernon, Florida, when we reviewed that on the show, I didn't love it as much as other Errol Morris films, but Sam really loved it. So there's certainly plenty of critical respect out there for that film. It's one that I think a lot of people probably regard even more highly than Gates. The Thin Blue Line also out in a special Blu-ray edition. And Josh, am I right? You haven't seen this one either? I have not seen okay. Thin Blue Line. The Thin Blue Line, This, as we're talking about blind spots, I think this one really is up there in terms of films I would urge you to see as fast as possible. This is the 1988 movie about Randall Adams, who was a drifter who gets arrested for murdering a Dallas police officer. He's sent to death row, and what Errol Morris tries to expose is whether or not a lot of these eyewitness accounts and the trial was really fair and accurate. And it's a film that's very different from Gates of Heaven in some ways, because it's not a movie that I think anyone would ever call a slideshow. It's a little bit more conventional and that we do get reenactments and that we do get this murder mystery that we're going to watch unravel a little bit. And the talking heads are maybe a little bit more conventional in that way than they are in Gates of Heaven. The Philip Glass score is also one of the real wonders of this movie. This new edition includes an interview with Morris, an interview with filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, who made The Act of Killing, one of our Golden Brick winners. We loved that film. One of the real strong faces out there in documentary cinema today. And it's a movie that was number one on my top five list of documentaries a few years back on the show. It's a groundbreaking film, I think, in the way it uses pop culture footage and those reenactments to really get at this notion of truth and really try to expose how everybody involved in this in one way or another has a different version of what happens. And this notion of any truth at all is unclear, but one thing I love that Morris gets at is how we can all lie. We can certainly all lie whether we're trying to or not, and he exposes that over the course of this film. So The Thin Blue Line is a movie for me that I would also give the essential tag with Gates of Heaven, and I watched the Oppenheimer interview on this movie. And I think he's really an heir to Errol Morris in a lot of ways because of the way he blurs reality and fiction to produce really powerful art. The Act of Killing, certainly highly recommended by us. And in that interview, he says this about The Thin Blue Line. This is a landmark film. This is a film that has redefined what we're looking at in documentary. We can't understand the court case or this miscarriage of justice unless we understand television and Hollywood and our greed and our alienation as a culture. And those are all the elements that Morris infuses into this film. So Gates of Heaven, 
a movie, Josh, that I am not surprised I had someone walk out of or would not be surprised if people reacted with opposition to it. Mm -hmm. The Thin Blue Line is one of those movies that I can sit here talking to anyone who's never seen it and recommend feeling fully confident. This isn't a movie like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia or one of those other films that we praise for 30 minutes and then people see and think, really, you made me watch a three-hour Turkish movie where nothing happens? You know, some people love it too. Some people kind of scratch their head. The Thin Blue Line is one of those films that I recommend to anybody and expect them to have a really great experience with it. Yes, it's a little weird at times too, but maybe it's because of that murder mystery element that people can latch onto. I think especially in light of the success of something like the Serial Podcast or if you've been watching The Jinx Jinx, on HBO, if you enjoy those two things... I think you'll love The Thin Blue Line. So wanted to give some love to those films and to Errol Morris again out on Blu-ray Criterion Collection editions this Tuesday, March 24th. We also recently got done extolling the virtues of Satyajit Ray in the fifth film in our Satyajit Ray marathon, The Big City. And that just went up. It's available now in the Film Spotting feed and over at filmspotting.net. Was that our longest Ray conversation? It was up there. It was up there. I think about the same length maybe as the... Two films, two films that we closed did, yeah. out the Apu trilogy, but we both loved the We Big had a lot City. to praise, yes. A lot to praise. Can't say enough about how much we loved that movie. We're going to wrap up the Ray Marathon in two weeks with 1964's The Lonely Wife, and we'll give out our Satyajit Ray Marathon Awards. It's going to be hard picking a best picture in this marathon, and we still need a name. We still need a good name for the awards, something that ties back to Ray, something that ties to these films, and maybe some of the ideas that have come up over the course of these discussions. If you've got a great idea, we'd love to hear it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Also at our website, we do frequently post our bonus content. You can get this if you have the Film Spotting app. And I was all set, Josh, to dive into the great batch of unforgiven feedback that we got. We have not gotten that yet. No, huh? we haven't. And we had a great Sacred Cow discussion about that movie. Michael Phillips was here, and he had a different take on the ending of that film a little bit. than the two of us, than most of our listeners. Well, maybe all of our listeners, in fact. But I think it generated a really good conversation, and it generated great feedback. I think just with everything going on, This week, especially in terms of that lengthy big city review, we're going to put it off. But I did want to tease it here because if you're a fan of Unforgiven or you wrote in or you're thinking of writing in, we'll get to that bonus content next week on the show. With all of that, let's get to a little bit of lighter fun. It's time for Massacre Theater. We still have time for Massacre Theater? Mm. Let's give it a go. We'll make time. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time we massacred this. You know it's true. Nobody ever. When the chips are down and your chips are down, I'm fine. You shut the hell up. Will you look at that? Those hookers let you down. What are you gonna do when you run out of gas? Call AAA. You sucker for the babes. You ain't even gonna make it to the pits. You shut the hell up. I'll make it. Not unless you keep your eyes on the road, sugar pie. Watch it! Ah, this is great. Just like being in a body movie. (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) Boy, you're screwed, eh? 
It's over. You're flushed. This time I can't bring myself to tell him to shut up. That was Clive Owen as Dwight and Benicio Del Toro as Jackie Boy in 2005's Sin City, written by Frank Miller, directed by Robert Rodriguez with Miller, although special guest director Quentin Tarantino, I believe, handled this scene. That's what I understand, yeah. And I have to say, you've had a lot of memorable performances, Josh. That one's up there. Really? That You like that, huh? Those... Which of the Changes, three voices the I did undulations there in your voice. Yeah, one of my favorite performances. Well, thank so you. Good on you. We massacred that scene a couple of weeks back on episode 528. It was our 10th anniversary edition of the show. And I did want to acknowledge some confusion where in the show breaks, we were looking back on 10 years and some recent editions of Massacre Theater, some singing performances. We did a song from Christopher Guest's Best in Show. Mm-hmm. We also played a scene from way back in the day where Sam and I massacred Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong from an officer and a gentleman. And some people... It was really beautiful, by the way. It was. Some people thought maybe we were massacring Best in Show again. We got a lot of entries for Best in Show. No, we were just massacring Sin City. It's like going back to the days when people had to win three times, <laughs> right? right. To That's actually right, we win. Had, so, we had no prizes. Unless you got two of those right last week. Well, no luck. speaking of your performance, we heard this from Paul Ronolo, Titusville, New Jersey. Incredibly irritating, but great effort. Exactly what well, I was going that's for. That's what we were going for. <laughs> Michael Roche in Leonia, New Jersey. Josh's brilliant portrayal of Benicio Del Toro's severed head in Sin City was inspired. And Adam's Clive Owen wasn't his go-to woman's voice. So progress. Yeah, you're coming along really I'll well there. It. Steve Yosero from Albuquerque, New Mexico said, I felt as if Josh's head really was mostly severed. Adam was moody, but he didn't have the smolder of Clive Owen. That's the story of my life. <laughs> That's all you're missing, really. Yeah, the smolder. Some Clive Owen smolder. Julio Oliveira from Austin, Texas said, I wasn't sure. The words sounded right, but that voice... I may have to crack open my Sin City Blu-ray and rewatch that scene. Did Del Toro really sound like a zombie with a speech impediment? Thankfully, the outtake at the end of the episode had Adam calling Dwight by name, so that confirmed it. It's the Tarantino-directed car scene. I can't really think of a connection other than the fact that Sin City was one of those huge disagreements Adam and Sam had back in the day, right? So it's an important moment in film spotting history. And this was the 10th anniversary show. The question is, 10 years from now, will you guys be doing a scene from Argo or from The Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, you might as well just start submitting your entries now for Massacre Theater for the 20th anniversary edition. It's going to be one of those two. I'm going to say it's going to be The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, it'll probably be The Wolf of Wall Street. But it is one of those memorable shows, though, for us anyway, going back to the fifth episode of Film Spotting, Sam and I had our first disagreement. We were in lockstep on the first four movies we reviewed, and then we came to Sin City, and Sam was not a fan, and I was surprisingly a very big fan. Yeah, it kind of pains me to say you were right. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. I was right, and it wasn't a fight. I don't know if I would call it a fight like Argo or The Wolf of Wall Street. Sam and I were still too new to this. We were still kind of feeling each other okay. out a little bit. It was it was pretty a polite civil. disagreement. Yeah, it was a polite disagreement. But most people did get the tie in there to the show's history and our 10th anniversary show. So it was a pretty loaded mailbag. Josh, reach in and pick out this week's winner. That would be John Newfrey, New Fry. I don't know. That would be John Newfrey or John Newfry. Either of them from Chicago. Congratulations, John. Either of you. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t shirt. Tate Toe No, no, Miss Lamont. Round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line. Sadly, no funny voices here to have this edition of Massacre Theater go down in the pantheon of memorable 
performances. Yeah, I don't think anyone. The secret, no. You might surprise there, me. There won't be any. The secret is the funny voices are kind of easier. This is the hard stuff when you have to. Yeah, like real acting. You, well, I was <laughs> going to say really bad acting. Oh, okay. I mean, normally we're just trying to copy decent acting. I would say here. What? Oh, this is brutal. No. Did you watch this scene? I've seen this movie probably 10 times. And you have yet to recognize that it's horrible acting. Okay. All right. We're going to have a film spotting fight right now oh, over come on this now. movie. Come on. <laughs> well, let's see if we can put aside our differences here to really have some strong chemistry. Yeah, I was going to say, here. now we've got to yeah. put all that away. Okay, I'm starting it off. You're going to give me the action. And action. I'm sorry about the way my father treated you. No, your father was great. I mean, he was great. The way he took care of Penny, it was... Yeah, but I mean, the way he was with you. It's really me it has to do with. I came here because my father... No, the way he saved her. I mean, I, I mean, I could never do anything like that. That was something. The reason people treat me like nothing is because I'm nothing. That's not... <laughs> your performance, <laughs> you're going so fast. <laughs> you can't keep up? I can't keep up. Come on. Do your last line. All right. That was something. The reason people treat me like I'm nothing is because I'm nothing. That's not true. You... You're everything. You don't understand the way it is. I mean, for somebody like me, last month I'm eating jujubes to keep alive. This month, we're stuffing diamonds in my pockets. I'm balancing on shit, and as quick as that, I came down there again. No, that's not the way it is. It doesn't have to be that way. I've never known anybody like you. You look at the world better, and you think you can make it better. Somebody's lost. You find them. Somebody's bleeding, and you just... Yeah, I go get my daddy. That's really brave, like you said. That took a lot of guts to go get him. You are not scared of anything. I don't... Me? I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of what I saw. I'm scared of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. And scene. <laughs> I don't know if my snap registered that. It was a little weak. Yeah, better the wrong... sound effect. It was the wrong hand. That's the problem. <laughs> if you know what scene... We just massacred, or maybe, as Josh would say, we didn't massacre it at all. Maybe we improved it. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. I can't even think of the tie-in to this week's show, so there I'm, was not sure. there yeah, was I'm not sure anyone else will get it. Your deadline is Monday, March 30th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Donnie. So, what the f*** do you want, Donnie? Oh, I just thought I'd drop by. Just checking in. Well, I don't remember any happy ending between us, Don. No reconciliation, nothing. Tilda Swinton not taking her first round film spotting madness loss to Bill Murray very well. Swinton versus Murray may be the most intriguing matchup as we headed into week one of film spotting madness, and it didn't disappoint. Murray and Swinton both belong to the Wes Anderson repertory players. I think you're still trying to get into that groove, Josh. Yeah, both no appearing luck in last year's Grand Budapest Hotel. They also appeared in Moonrise Kingdom. That clip, though, from Jim Jarmusch's 2005 film Broken Flowers with Murray as a perennial bachelor checking in on his old flames. We hope you had as much fun with Film Spotting Madness last week as we did. We started with 32 Film Spotting favorites, gave you 16 head-to-head matchups to try to whittle this down over the course of the next few weeks to one winner. Is it fair to say people had fun? I mean, there were a lot of complaining about what we were forcing people to do. Yeah, on that's Facebook one of my and Twitter, favorite things. We heard a lot of yeah, that. Yeah, but complaining along the lines of... This was cruel. Yeah. Cruel was the most common word I saw. One <laughs> listener said it was a war crime. Having, wow. Having to pick these 
actors and pitting them against each other. One listener also used the word evil. So that really was one of the joys for me. It sounds like fun. Those responses. And I don't want to get into the math of this, certainly, but Sam and I were the selection committee here. And we did kind of seed the actors based on how we thought they would perform, judging our audience our thoughts about those performers as well, but really thinking about the audience and how the voting would go. And I guess, other than one blatant miscalculation of esteem for one actor by the selection committee, I think we did pretty well because if you look at the results, we're going to get into them here. We only had two upsets. So the favorites took down the lower seeds as it in theory, should Should go. go, Yeah, Yeah, if we're really judging our audience correctly. And we did hear this from the Film Spotting Madness creator, Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. He had a response to how we took his little idea and ran with it. I love the changes you guys made. To clarify my original list, I left Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep, and Bill Murray off on purpose as Pantheon performers. The eventual winner needs someone to act opposite them. I'm glad you had the guts to put Murray back in. I also scrapped Bale and Damon off my original draft because although A-list, they aren't as true to the film's spotting spirit as the likes of Sam Rockwell and Michael Shannon. Lastly, to account for your self-criticism of often being too white male-centric, my original list started with 16 men and 16 women. I also was intentional in including actors of color within the film's spotting world. Thus, Penelope Cruz over Anna Kendrick and Chiwetel Ejiofor over Ed Norton originally. Again, I'm glad you made the changes it went with your hearts instead of my head. Overlooking McAvoy and Tatum was just my bad. I love how much you guys in Film Spotting Nation have embraced this idea. Can't wait to see who raises the Philip Seymour Hoffman trophy. Yeah, that's what we suggested it might in fact be as he kind of seems to us the actor who really not only would be one of the top seeds in this list if he was still alive and we were so fortunate as to have more films from him to see, but he's also the actor who really probably defined the last 10 years here as we've been talking about movies on the show. So happy that Mike Merrigan is happy with our list. And I'll say he's right about actors like Christian Bale and Matt Damon, both fine actors. I like them both, but not really fitting with the film spotting spirit. I think that is fair to say in terms of the number of performances and movies of theirs that we've praised over the years. James McAvoy, who I think I'm under contract as saying, my boy, James McAvoy. That's how much I like him. That's how I always refer to him. And yet, he didn't completely forgot cut. about him. Completely forgot so about him. So it means nothing to be Adam Kempenar's boy. my boy. No, counts okay. for nothing Good to know. the show, apparently. And Sam pointed out as well, another one, he wouldn't have made the cut, but he should have been part of the conversation, even though I'm, I think, mostly alone in my love of him as an actor. That is Mark Duplass. Yeah, I like him. I don't know that he needed to be in this tournament. No, maybe not. But there you go, at least with Daniel Day-Lewis, someone like Meryl Streep, who I also, I mean, we love Meryl Streep, how can you not? But doesn't really fit in with, again, actors and actresses we've praised a ton over the years. So I like leaving them out as sort of pantheon performers. Let's get to the results. We didn't show the results on the website. I'm guessing the people who have been having fun with Film Spotting Madness are pretty eager to see how the first round matchups shook out. And to help us break down those results a little bit, We've got some great feedback from Erin Teachman in Washington, D.C. She sent us her picks in real time. We're not going to share all of her thoughts, but we'll sprinkle them throughout here because I think her real-time take on these quandaries probably was similar for most people out there. I know it was similar to the dilemma I had with most of these picks. So let's start with the first battle we posed to you, Michael Fassbender versus Brendan Gleason. Aaron wrote, easy one, sorry, Brendan. Took possibly a microsecond, which is faster than a human being can actually react, but the point stands. Winner, fast bender. Okay, so Aaron, right in line with film spotting listeners there to the tune of 73% 
really just trouncing Brendan Gleeson. We knew that was going to happen. Yeah, we knew it. And in fact, we both picked Michael Fassbender. The second matchup, wow, one of the toughest ones for me by far, Marion Cotillard versus Naomi Watts. Slight hesitation. Watts exploded into my life with Mulholland Drive, and she has yet to disappoint, but... Cotillard has another gear. She's capable of being darker and more intense than Watts, or she's chosen material that lets her do that anyway, so point still goes to her. Winner, Cotillard. Again, Aaron, right in line with our listeners. Marion Cotillard with 65%. Poor Naomi Watts will always have Mulholland Drive, and apparently and that's your, it. your vote. And my vote, because I did go just for old time's sake with one of my all-time favorite actresses, Naomi Watts, but she also kind of got drubbed. Ryan Gosling versus Anna Kendrick, two young bucks, two up-and-comers, I think you could safely say that. And this one was a little bit closer. I'm happy to see Gosling winning, though, 58% to 43%. And you didn't take my advice, did you, about the room charisma, the room, the room charisma. power, who would I even win that said, contest? I even said no one can take a room away from Ryan Gosling. And but you still voted for alas, Kendrick. Alas, Film Spawning Madness is not about how well you smolder in a room and how well you hold everyone's attention. It's about more than that. And I actually did go with Anna Kendrick. I know. You went with Gosling, though. I went the right way. Okay, so Gosling won that one. That brings us to Kate Blanchett versus Oscar Isaac. Aaron Teachman said, sorry, Lewin Davis. Blanchett is in a different universe. Winner, Blanchett. So, again, in line with our listeners, 66% for Blanchett to Oscar Isaac's 34%. Here's a good one. Joaquin Phoenix versus Miles Teller. Trend appearing, I'm taking track record over potential and versatility over everything. Joaquin's given a lot, and it feels like he's got even more to give, which seems absurd considering what he's already achieved. Whiplash only made me hesitate for a nanosecond. Winner, Phoenix. Where was all the Team Whiplash fans when you needed them because Teller also getting crushed 78% to 22% and Phoenix got both of our votes. Maybe more well. J.K. Simmons fans. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it. Our next matchup here, Channing Tatum versus Kerry Mulligan. And this is one of the two upsets, really where the selection committee just overestimated the love out there among our listeners for an actor. Tatum versus Mulligan. We had Channing Tatum as a much higher seed than Kerry Mulligan. Just thinking about his recent popularity, some of those great performances. He's really good in Foxcatcher, even if we didn't like it, and Magic Mike. Our long debate about whether he's too beefy or not. Yeah, you know, come on. That's been a common theme here over the past year on the show. And yet, Josh, look at how it came out. Only 33% of the vote went to Tatum. Mulligan, 67%. That is shocking, though. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, Kerry Mulligan's one of those fringier art house actresses. It can't be a Jupiter... Ascending after effect, because we talked about how he kind of managed to distance himself yeah, from bit. the worst so that you think maybe that's what happened. No, I don't know. I don't I don't think it's Jupiter Ascending's fault, but I just think among our listeners, they're, they're a choosier bunch. And they think about maybe movies like Shame and Never Let Me Go and some of her other recent turns in education. So good in that film, the film that was really her breakthrough. And they're probably fast forwarding when we start talking about Tatum, as we often do. They might be. Matthew McConaughey versus Woody Harrelson, our true detective showdown. This is how it came out. McConaughey, 69%. Woody Harrelson, 31%. Poor Woody. Probably how we thought it would come out. We both voted for McConaughey. And it is true. If you think about this one, just go back five years ago. McConaughey is fresh off movies like Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. Woody Harrelson is coming off Zombieland, The Messenger. That's right. He wouldn't even have made, McConaughey wouldn't even have made the top 32 a few years ago. And now he's going on to the second round. 
Emma Stone versus Sam Rockwell. This is one of the other big upsets. Aaron Teachman said, oh, man, things are getting tougher. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind might have been the perfect movie for Sam Rockwell, and he was perfect in it. I agree with that. I think he's got more of those in him. Stone is good, but I've never seen her get that combo of perfect movie, perfect actor. Ask me this question again in five years. Winner, Rockwell. So we really thought that Emma Stone, who got both of our votes, I actually did go Emma Stone over Sam Rockwell as much as I love him as an actor. We thought she would run away with this. And instead, it was in Rockwell's favor, 54% to 46%. Leo DiCaprio versus young Mia Vasakovska. She didn't fare so well, 72% for DiCaprio. He also got both of our votes. Here's one that we split on as we knew that we would. Bill Murray versus Tilda Swinton, two character actor giants, beloved among us and our listeners. How did it come out, Josh? Thankfully, rightfully, Murray, 55% of the vote, Swinton, 44%. I really thought Swinton might surprise everyone and pull off the upset, but she didn't. I think Murray has that sentimentality factor going Mm. for him. I don't know that Swinton really hits people in that same spot. Okay, apparently not. Scarlett Johansson versus Chiwetel Ejiofor. This one... Not very close. Johansson was 62%, edgy of four, 38%. Jake Gyllenhaal versus Juliette Binoche. That one went to Gyllenhaal with 66% of the vote. Goodbye, Binoche, only 34%. Tom Hardy versus Ben Mendelsohn. This one was the biggest edge, the biggest gap in voting. Hardy had no problems at all with Ben Mendelsohn. He only got 14% of the vote to Hardy's 86% of the vote. Also, mysteriously, we're trying to figure out why 40 fewer people seem to vote in that poll. Everyone else was pretty equal, like they just went right down the line. Maybe they just decided... Assuming Hardy would win, yeah, maybe? so they didn't even need to vote. That's the only I don't thing know, I can think but of. Hardy certainly didn't need any help with Ben Mendelsohn there. As we mentioned earlier, Michael Shannon did make it to the next round by defeating Michelle Williams. He got 57% of that vote with Williams getting 43%. You know, you take a couple years off to do Broadway, you're going to pay the price in film spotting madness. Jennifer Lawrence versus Rooney Mara Lawrence, no problems at all. 69% to Rooney Mara's 31%. Jessica Chastain and Javier Bardem. Chastain winning with 60% of that vote. Okay, so you can, of course, follow all of these results. You can see them posted over at filmspotting.net. You can actually see the whole bracket there. Just a couple observations. We mentioned that vote discrepancy, but also Gosling versus Kendrick, which we thought would be one of the tougher ones, and Bill Murray versus Tilda Swinton. They were neck and neck for the first 300 or 400 votes. We really thought they were going to be classic death matches, kind of wavering in that 49 to 51% range. And then after that, More listeners heard, more listeners went to the website. Gosling and Bill Murray started to pull away a little bit in those ones. Okay, so round one is finally over. We have now eight head-to-head matchups. The Sweet 16. Josh, go ahead here. List the first four matchups. Fassbender versus Cotillard. This would sort of be the Macbeth versus Lady Macbeth matchup. Gosling versus Blanchett. Phoenix versus Mulligan. McConaughey versus Rockwell. We also have Bill Murray now facing... Leo DiCaprio, probably a little bit more formidable a challenge than Tilda Swinton. Scarlett Johansson versus Jake Gyllenhaal. Tom Hardy, oh man, versus Michael Shannon. And two great actresses right now, Jennifer Lawrence versus Jessica Chastain. I hate the fact that one of those has to go, is not going to make it past the Sweet 16. So Josh, looking at those eight matchups, which one for you is the most intriguing? Probably Murray versus DiCaprio, just because they're so absolutely different in my mind. Mm -hmm. Different movie universe to me, so I'm not even quite sure how to weigh those two against each other. Yeah, I'm with you. My first answer is all of them are really intriguing, (laughs) but I also made a note of DiCaprio versus Murray because you've got, as you said, these 
performers that don't really inhabit the same space at all. One's this character actor and art house favorite versus one of the consummate leading men out there. So can't wait to see how Film Spotting Nation goes on that one. And then for me as well, that Lawrence versus Chastain. A little bit more of an art house favorite in Chastain versus one of the biggest movie stars in the world right now. This one almost feels like it could be the championship, you know, that it's coming this early. I think people are going to really struggle with it. Well, speaking of struggles, which one for you is the toughest one? What was the hardest one to vote on for you? It was Fassbender versus Cotillard. I just think that... I don't know. Maybe I'm just going to have to admit you are the bigger Fassbender fan. You get all the airtime <laughs> There's no going doubt on and on about how great I he is. I would never accept that. And no one seems to notice that I actually think he's quite a fine actor as well. Well, there's maybe a reason for that. Maybe I'll give that one to you and I'm going to have to vote for Cotillard. But Phoenix versus Mulligan was tough too. I mean, uh, both are just so invaluable in their pictures, but they're operating at such different volume levels mm. that another pair that's hard to really put against each other and figure out which way to go. Well, for me, not necessarily the toughest, but the most painful to vote on was Tom Hardy versus Michael Shannon. Having to make that choice that I'm not going to see one of those two actors ever act again, that was the hardest. And yet I was able to come up with an answer after a lot of careful deliberation. One that took me even longer to figure out, even though I maybe am not as invested in the two actors as I am Hardy and Shannon. And actually, I still haven't voted yet. I don't know how I'm going to go in this one. It's the battle of the Hollywood beauties, I think you could say. Female, male, both very attractive. And they're both performers who I used to strongly dislike. I ripped on both of them, movie after movie, over the years here on Film Spotting, up until quite recently, where they've both, for me, turned a corner and have done some of their best, most engaging work. And that's Scarlett Johansson versus Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, they, I guess they. I, it is fair to think of them in that same way. I would say, and I was a fan of Johansson's going back to when she was a child actor and did that Ghost Robert World. Redford. No, no, no. Before that, she even did the, um, yeah, it was the like horse a horse whisperer. movie. Yeah, yeah, the yeah horse she, was, she really stood out to me there. So I've always liked her, but I think if you put their body of work together, Jill and Hall has amassed a lot better performances. Yeah, but when you hear that Scarlett Johansson's got a new movie coming out or Jake Gyllenhaal's got a new movie coming out. You don't know anything else about him. Which one do you go see? Probably Gyllenhaal, honestly. Well, I think me too. I think me too. So (laughs) I'm probably voting with you, Josh. Round two, The Sweet 16, is up now. We hope you will participate at filmspotting.net. Well, before Adam and I finish our votes, we're going to share our list of the best movies about royalty. Sorry, Matt Singer, King Ralph didn't make the cut. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. We love featuring music recommendations here on the show, and this week's featured artist, Jane Trimble, comes to us from listener Evan Dunlop, who just so happens to be Mr. 
Jane Trimble. The album is the 2014 recording In the Morning. Evan sends us this. Hey guys, I've been listening for 18 months solid now. In my first two months, I powered through 100 episodes and have been a regular listener ever since. I'm writing to suggest my wife, Jane Trimble, as a musical feature. I'm not sure if you were planning to review the upcoming release, 71, but my wife is from Coney Island, Northern Ireland, UK. Terry George is now the owner of her former childhood home. We've recently moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where I am freshly working in the film TV industry after 10 years in music. Please find a link to our website, which we'll link to. Thanks so much. All the best to the most entertaining and informative film podcast out there. Sorry, Elvis, your interviews are amazing. They are amazing. Thank you for that, Evan. And thank you, Jane Trimble. We are happy to feature your music this week. And 71 is a film, despite the fact that it stars our guy, Jack O'Connell, who probably should have made film spotting madness. Maybe one more film yeah, could have crept he, yeah. on. We need to see another performance there, but we both love him as a young actor. And you did see 71 out of Sunday. Yeah, the first thing I saw over there. And it's a really gritty. He's great in it. It's a really gritty action film as well. The director there, Jan Demange, is definitely somebody to keep an eye on. Okay. We will try to do that. Let's get to our donations and our thank yous this week. We start with Catherine Stevens in Mundelein, Illinois. I don't know why Catherine's donating again. She already supports the show so much with previous donations and also coming out to our live recordings. Nick Moses in Simi Valley, California also donating this week. I think Nick extending a little bit of an olive branch after he laid into us with some email feedback about our top five blind spots, thinking maybe we were a little too highfalutin, a little too pretentious, and he's probably not wrong. Yeah, I know. So we'll probably feature that email at some point down the road, maybe in bonus content. Thank you, Nick. Some new $5 a month donors to the show, Chad Binghamton, New York, Barbara in Menlo Park, California, and Zeph in Portland, Oregon. Happy belated 10th birthday to my favorite podcast. I've been listening since the very beginning, and it's amazing to think that you've been there with me week in and week out for the last decade of my life. Your film discussions are always insightful, entertaining, and sometimes deliciously contentious. I've been especially impressed by the golden brick factor. You've turned me on to so many amazing films I may have overlooked otherwise, most notably Take Shelter, now one of my favorite films of all time. Anyway, I figured I'm way past due on paying the dealer. I've donated before, but it's been a while. So here you go, hoping for 10 more years of film spotting. Thank you very much. We also got a $5 subscription from Elise Willett in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. She says, as a listener since 2009, my $5 a month subscription is long overdue. But please take this better late than ever donation as a thank you for causing me countless awkward moments of laughing and or booing out loud in totally inappropriate situations, i.e. on the treadmill, at red lights, (laughs) on the bus, in the library. You get the picture. I also want my donation to represent my excitement at the recent increase in mention of female directors and actors on the show. I hope this is a trend that can Continues. I've also included my fringe list and an obvious vote for a Cassavetes marathon ASAP. We keep mentioning it. We do plan to get to that Cassavetes marathon at some point. So top five characters on the fringe. Last week's top five list. Here is what Elise had to say. Number five, Nada, Roddy Piper in John Carpenter's They Live. Number four, Carrie, Sissy Spacek in the movie Carrie. Number three, Eva, Esser Belint from Stranger Than Paradise, the Jarmish film. Number two, Luke cool hand luke of course paul newman ineligible because he's in the pantheon but maybe the all-time cinematic misfit and number one mabel jenna rollins in john cassavetti's a woman under the influence i do love that film nice work there Elise, making up for our oversight of jim jarmusch <laughs> there you go gold level donors mark stivers in sacramento california and rob jones in seattle with just a quick thought on our recent top five blind spots speaking of that list and Nick's comments we're going to get to some of that feedback certainly on a future show some great responses especially as they tie to the snubbing 
of Dr. Zhivago. This must have occurred to you, but I'm bringing it up anyway. The 200 minutes of Dr. Zhivago don't have to be watched sequentially. Movies always have a break in the narrative thread, the end of an act, if you will. Leave it there and pick it up the next day. I've watched many shorter films that way because it allows me to fit movies into my schedule and still get a good night's sleep. A one-day break isn't long enough to forget the storyline or the relationships between and among characters. I've been listening since before Sam had the van, a bit before Brick. Well, here's my dirty little secret, Rob. Every movie I watch for this show, I break up into parts, even if it's 85 minutes. I mean, seriously, I almost have to because I'm usually not starting them until late at night after the kids have gone to bed and I can't make it through this even is, this a two-hour movie. This is kind of appalling. It's just reality. I know, I know it's a reality, but it's not the preferred way. Not the preferred way. And yet, you know what? I did it with The Big City. Didn't stop me so, from dubbing it a masterpiece, which it is. So Shivago is going to be watched in about Seven 14 parts. installments. Yes, yeah, at least. <laughs> okay, great. Except it's not because we'll never watch it. <laughs> oh, you said it. <laughs> Tim in Kensington, California, Adam and Josh, thanks for all the great shows over the years. Your discussions are a part of my weekly drives and walks around the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. I was just in the Bay Area last weekend. Should have met Tim for a beer. I've been listening since 2010 and think it's high time that I show my gratitude by donating to your great show. Happy 10 years and here's to many more. Clay from Whittier, California, which is somewhat near Upland, said, just wanted to thank you for all of the spirited discussions that I've been enjoying over the years. Perhaps the best thing about your show has been that it consistently gives my dad and me good fodder for conversation, even if we disagree with you every now and then. It is because of this that I've made a donation. My father often says that he's given up hope with the majority of lackluster films that come out these days. Hopefully this small contribution can and help keep you ever vigilant for the next diamond in the rough for him to appreciate. Well, we will certainly continue that effort, Clay. And finally, a platinum level donation, big donation from Tom in L.A. And I could be wrong. Maybe I missed something, Josh, but you get a big donation from a listener. Occasionally, I do a search and I think, well, what kind of interaction have we had with this listener? How long have they been listening? What kind of prior feedback have we received? And I don't know if Tom's new or not, but going back to the start of film spotting when that name began back in 2007. I looked at the mailbag. I saw nothing. I saw nothing from anybody named Tom Freeman, which I'm just wondering if he's just been silently listening over the years and just now chimed in. He's a very generous mystery. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And on our latest episode, Matt Singer and I tried desperately to salvage our sagging approval ratings. We can do likable. Watch how likable we can be. We discuss season three of House of Cards. And we'll be taking a break from talking film to offer some TV recommendations, all available to rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. A fighting men. They have full three score thousand. That's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. It is a fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here. But one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? 
My cousin Westmoreland. No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. I like a little pep talk before starting a top five. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar, and that was Cinderella director Kenneth Branagh in the title role in Henry V, Branagh's auspicious debut as star and director. Henry V, fair to say, for me, among the more exemplary royals ever put on film or stage, at least as Shakespeare conceived him. And it does help us set up this week's top five. We are going back to our review of Branagh's Cinderella and thinking about movies about royalty. Henry V will not make my list. It's in my personal penalty box. I'd put it in the Pantheon. I love that film that much, but it's at least in the penalty box as one of those movies that's come up way too often over the years. But I wasn't going to be denied playing a snippet of it. So that's the excuse there to transition into this segment with that clip from Henry V. Again, though, not going to make my list. Josh, let's hear about what movies are going to make your list. So it's not going to make your list because you're setting aside all Shakespeare? Well, actually, I am. I'm not necessarily setting aside versions of Shakespeare. Yeah. Right? But anything that's direct Shakespeare? Direct. Yes, I count it out. I don't have any direct on my list as well, but definitely some based on Shakespeare. The other thing I thought about is some of those that came to mind simply had royal characters in them, but they weren't necessarily what the movie was about. It's not that... If not that it was entirely about royalty, that had to be one of the strong elements. It just helped me to winnow things down. I'm with you completely. I did the same thing. So, for example, a movie that has a royal title in its title left out a movie I love, The Princess Bride. Not really a movie about royalty, even though it has a king and obviously has a princess. So we're on the same page there. All right, for my number five, I have a film from China's Zhang Yimo. He's made a handful that touch on royalty. And from the ones I've seen, I decided to go with Curse of the Golden Flower. This is from 2006. It's set in ancient China, and it charts the court and family intrigue involving an emperor, his sons, and the empress. There are various plots against the emperor, attempts to take claim on the throne. The emperor is played by Chao Yun-Fat, and the empress is played by Gong Li. If this focuses on one aspect of royalty, it's absolutely the pageantry of it. Zhang's sumptuous style here and his emphasis on bold color, that overpowers everything else that's going on in this movie. There's a sensuality to the film that's definitely expressed by the actors, but just as much by things like ornate tapestries. And the flowers of the title here, they're yellow chrysanthemums. They get a lot of screen time, too. There's this one sequence where they cover what looks to be like hundreds of yards of the palace court. The best way probably to describe the production design in this is that it's equally inspired by Willy Wonka and Donald Trump. It may may horrify you, but it's a little (laughs) bit of what's going on here. Good thing, though, is that the movie does have the statuesque presence of actors like Chow Yun-Fat and Gong Li. I mean, they, they don't get lost amidst this spectacle, which would be easy to do. So Curse of the Golden Flower, my number five movie about royalty. Sounds like a great pick. I don't think my number five has quite the same amount of spectacle or pageantry, but it is a gem from 1988. Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, 
coming to America. I think this is a film spotting first. In 10 years, I don't think coming to America has ever made a top five. We talked about it for one list, but it might have just been an honorable mention. I think it's finally cracked through. I think you're right. Of course, Eddie Murphy plays Akeem, the crown prince to the throne of Zamunda, and he has a wife foisted upon him. He's supposed to get married and eventually assume the throne and live out his days in power. But that's not good enough for him. He, of course, wants to go to America. He wants to travel. He wants to find a proper woman for him, someone who genuinely loves him and who he loves as well. And that brings him to Queens in New York City, where he ends up working at a McDonald's knockoff called McDowell's. He meets the daughter of the owner and does find his true future queen. I am Akeem. It's nice to meet you, Akeem. I have recently been placed in charge of garbage. Do you have any that requires disposal? No, it's totally empty. Well, when it fills up, don't be afraid to call me. I'll come take it out most urgently. That's good to know. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. Of course, everyone remembers the barbershop scenes that are really funny. Randy Watson and sexual chocolate. I mean, most times when I get a microphone in my hand, even before we start taping here every week, I usually drop it and say sexual chocolate. It's just this is true. It's just fun to say. I'm sorry. Also, I felt like after 10 years, we needed a movie represented that had in its credits a character named Big Stank Woman. That's in the credits. Okay, so, you know, I had to go with it. Not Is much like slacker there. where the credits don't give the characters names either. It's just descriptives. Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. I do think Eddie Murphy here is at the height of his comedic powers. I like 48 Hours better as a movie. I like Beverly Hills Cop better. I think he's probably better overall in both of those films, maybe trading places even as well. But in terms of showcasing those comedic abilities, of course, most people will think of movies like The Nutty Professor, where we see some of that same playing around with prosthetics and some of those wackier characters. But for me, it really starts here and is done better in coming to America, whether he's playing Akeem or Randy Watson or Clarence, the Jewish customer at the barbershop, or Saul, the owner of the barbershop. Arsenio Hall here is playing multiple characters as well. So really just because I wanted to give coming to America some love. Finally, it's my number five. There are a lot of ornate tapestries in coming to America there from is. what I remember. That's right. All right. Nice pick. My number four is looking for Richard. Here we're starting to get into the Shakespeare stuff. There are a lot of meta elements at work in this 1996 documentary, which make it a good fit for this list, I think. It's Al Pacino's directorial debut. And now that I think about it, it's something of a Birdman, a real-life Birdman scenario going on here. He's documenting rehearsals of his production of Shakespeare's Richard III, and it's interspersed with interview scenes about what the play means to him, what it means to his fellow actors. He has some confessional moments about the play and about acting. He also has interviews here with people on the street where he asks them if they've even heard of Richard III or what they think of Shakespeare that are sort of amusing. So Hamlet here is. You saw Hamlet? How did you feel about it? What did you see? It live? It sucked. It sucked. I saw it live down the street. Is there anything you can think of with Shakespeare that that makes you think that it's not like uh, close to you or connected to you in any way? Yeah, it's boring. It's, it is fun to see Pacino. He's this this pushy and playful Shakespeare enthusiast here, which is a twist on his usual on-screen persona. And as far as royalty goes, obviously there's the connection to the play itself, which charts Richard's scheming 
and his rise to the throne. But it's also worth noting that Pacino, of course, casts himself as Richard III. So it does become something of a consideration of Hollywood royalty, too. And it's an irony that Pacino is certainly aware of it, but maybe not entirely. There are other elements where you can see um, that uh, it's a vanity project as well, even though he's trying very hard not to make it be a vanity project. So some people, they dismissed it simply as that. But I do think if you're interested in Shakespeare, there's enough other stuff here that you're able to set that element aside. So interested in Shakespeare, of course I am. Interested in Al Pacino as an actor, of course I am. And interested in meta movies like this, which it very much is. And movies about the stage. I love the theater. You would think I'd have seen Looking for Richard. I have not. Well, I would be curious to see if you, if how it strikes you, if all those things come together in a good way or in a wrong way. Yeah. I really went for it, so. Well, my number four is another culture clash movie along the lines of Coming to America, also a comedy like Coming to America, though maybe more highly regarded as a classic. It is William Wyler's 1953 film starring... Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck, Roman Holiday, co-written by blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. Yes, it is another case of a royal like Akeem going slumming, if you will, and falling in love along the way. Hepburn plays Princess Anne. She is off for a night in Rome. And I think this clip I found, Josh, really sets up perfectly the dilemma of being a royal, because that really was for us the overriding criterion here is that struggle of wearing the crown and the burdens of it. I think you hear in this scene just how much of a toll it's taking on young Princess Anne. 11.45 back here to rest. No, that's wrong. 11.45 conference here with the press. Sweetness and decency. One o'clock sharp, lunch with the foreign ministry. You will wear your white lace and carry a bouquet of a very small pink roses. 3.05, presentation of a plaque. Thank you. 4.10, review special guard of carabinieri police. No, thank you. 4.45, back do? here to change Sharp. your uniform so to meet the international... No! Good no, no, no! It's all right, dear, it didn't spill. I don't give it spilled or not. I don't give my drown in it. So she loses it a little bit. She ends up meeting Gregory Peck, who's kind of a ruthless newspaper guy who needs a big story. Once he finds out he's got Princess Anne, he doesn't try to let on that he knows, and he's going to end up exploiting her to get his story and get his payday. Of course, they end up having some feelings for each other and discovering some new things about themselves and each other along the way. Hepburn and Peck are, well, Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. They're wonderful. And I like the fact that, spoiler alert, it ends sort of bittersweetly. It's happy in a way, but not maybe the Hollywood ending you hope for or think it would give you. It's actually a little bit more true to life in that it says by the end, we all have our roles to play. And despite these little reprieves from reality, we might occasionally get in the end, most of us fall back into those roles. So I like the fact that it's a little gray at the end, but certainly a fun romantic comedy. I always forget that's William Wyler. I don't I don't know why that escapes me, but that's a good pick. It was probably my number six for this list. My number three, however, is The Last Emperor, which is Bernardo Bertolucci's 1987 historical epic. It won nine Oscars, including Best Picture. John Lone, Joan Chen, and Peter O'Toole are in this, dramatizing the life of the final emperor of China, and it traces the time from when he was brought to the palace as this small, anointed child, all the way to his final days as a lowly gardener in the wake of the Cultural Revolution. 
Like Curse of the Golden Flower, this also features scenes inside the Forbidden City. When the Emperor is a little boy, Bertolucci was given rare access to film there, and it might even top Golden Flower in terms of pageantry. Now, I haven't seen this since 1987, when it was one of the first grown-up movies I went to. I would have been probably 13 at the time. I'd seen plenty of adult stuff on TV, you know, or at friends' houses, not stuff of the Oscar variety. So this was one of those prestigious theater events in my mind. I went with my parents to one of the fancier downtown Chicago theaters. It might have even been, I think the Water Tower or Water Tower Place had one with the red carpets and the railings and everything. Had an intermission. That was a big deal. And I remember thinking, you know, I was seeing real art now. I don't know if I watched it again, what I would make of it. I'm sure I'd bring some critical skepticism to it. I'm especially curious about an Italian director framing so much of Chinese history. But in my memory, The Last Emperor is this stately, formidable consideration of royalty found and lost. Can't speak to The Last Emperor, but can't speak to other Bertolucci films, including The Conformist easily in my top 50, maybe even higher films of all time. My number three, as I look through it here, and we get to my number two here in a moment, I realize I've got three princesses in a row on this list, and I'm going with Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the Hayao Miyazaki film from 1984, the first Miyazaki film I believe he made for his studio, Studio Ghibli. Another film, as you would expect, that expresses his love for nature, for the environment, and trying to protect it as much as possible. I was looking back at the Wikipedia page for this today to try to get a sense of the plot, and it's pretty convoluted. And I don't remember the film itself being that confusing, but if you read all the twists and turns and ins and outs, it's not something I'm going to be able to sum up here very quickly. The basis for the story is that Nausicaa gets involved in this conflict with a kingdom that is trying to basically get rid of these giant mutant insects, and she's stopped them before they become even more angry and everybody gets destroyed. Film Spotting Advisory Board member Sean Gilman, a big Miyazaki fan, said this on Letterboxd, like Princess Mononoke, but with some road warrior and a dash of starship troopers to help leaven the lecture, along with Miyazaki's trademark weird. I think that's about the best one-sentence summation of this film that you'll get. What I really like about this film, especially in contrast to something like Roman Holiday, is that Nausicaa is far from a sheltered princess like Anne. She gets her hands dirty. She gets involved here. And I love the movie, as I love all Miyazaki films for the visuals and its weirdness, but it's really that character and how she handles her authority that I respond to the most. And I went back through my notes from a few years ago, I think it was. It was in connection with The Wind Rises, we did our top five Miyazaki mm-hmm. characters. And I'm scanning through it. And I'm thinking, how could I have possibly left Nausicaa off the list? And sure enough, I didn't leave her off. She was there at number one. This is what I said then. She's straight up the biggest badass I know of in the Miyazaki universe. Determined, daring, and courageous. A good fighter, amazing flyer, a natural leader, admired and respected by everyone in the valley. She's willing to sacrifice her safety and her life for the greater good. And... That made me think about this whole list of movies about royalty. That's what a royal should really embody, right? They should be serving their kingdom, the people of their kingdom, and that greater good. I don't think most of them do end up, as we see in these films, but she really does. And I also said she's the Miyazaki character I most want to be, which also struck me as interesting in this context, because how many of these royals, if you look at your list and my list, would we ever actually want to trade places with, despite the supposed power, the wealth, the servants, 
we mostly see in these movies how oppressive and restrictive that type of life is. It's not that case with Nausicaa in that Miyazaki film. Nausicaa, that's one of the few Miyazakis I haven't seen. So I did consider Princess Mononoke for this list, but left it as one of the honorable mentions. So at number two, this is my Disney slot, and I had to decide which Disney animated movie is most about royalty. We went back and forth on this at the house quite a bit. The Princess and the Frog, maybe. Aladdin came close, we thought. The Little Mermaid, Brave, which I mentioned in our review of Cinderella. But it turns out none of the princess movies are about royalty as much as The Lion King. Now, we're back to Shakespeare here, of course. This is a loose adaptation of Hamlet set on the African savanna. Comes complete with a conniving uncle, a murdered king, and a confused prince. If Hamlet is largely about the responsibility and burden of royalty, once again, not necessarily a pleasurable thing, that is what we have here with Lion Cub Simba at first fleeing from and then embracing his birthright. Look, Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. Everything the light touches. What about that shadowy place? That's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. But I thought a king can do whatever he wants. Oh, there's more to being king than getting your way all the time. There's more? <laughs> Simba. If you're going to convincingly characterize a lion as king, too, it's not a bad idea to get James Earl Jones' voice. So my Disney pick, going to The Lion King. Yeah, that's a great choice. It's an honorable mention for me, for sure. And really, the Disney movie I wanted to go with for this list. My number two is a movie that isn't so much about that struggle or the burden of being a royal, but about the power of the myths that surround royalty and these figures and how they plant themselves in our imaginations. It's Guillermo del Toro's film from 2006, Pan's Labyrinth, which is another one. Talk about convoluted and hard to kind of sum up with all of its twists and turns and the merging of reality and fantasy. But it takes place in the summer, the spring of 1944. It's after the Spanish Civil War. And there is Early on, we're introduced to a direct fairy tale, Princess Moana. Her father is the king of the underworld, and he visits the human world. And then we're back in the real world in Spain in 1944. And this young girl, Ophelia, who travels with her mother to meet her new stepfather, who is a pretty sadistic, ruthless man. And as her real world gets more out of control, she gets more and more lost in this imaginary world. And we get back to that Princess Moana storyline and a queen and a king and all sorts of weird creatures like you'd expect from Del Toro. Because it had been so long since I've seen this, it was among my top 10 films of 2006. But I couldn't find my notes for it. I don't know where they are. I couldn't go back and really, short of listening to the show, figure out what I really felt about this movie. So I did what we often do here, Josh. I turned to The Gospel of Ebert to get some direction. And this is what Roger Ebert said in his great movies review of Pan's Labyrinth. It's one of the greatest of all fantasy films, even though it is anchored so firmly in the reality of war. On first viewing, it is challenging to comprehend a movie that on the one hand provides fawns and fairies, and on the other hand creates an inhuman status in the uniform of Franco's fascists. The fawns and fantasies are seen only by the 11-year-old heroine, but that does not mean she's only dreaming. They are as real as the fascist captain who murders on the flimsiest excuse. The coexistence of these two worlds is one of the scariest elements of the film. They both impose sets of rules that can get an 11-year-old killed. I think what he's referring to there is 
stakes, as we like to call them here on Film Spotting. And that's probably one of the big reasons why I responded to Pan's Labyrinth the way I did great film and i had forgotten that that royalty element was in it actually it's one of those movies where distinct images come to mind more than Mm -hmm. some of the narrative through lines but i love that my number one is ron it's akira kurosawa's 1985 film about a japanese warlord who decides to abdicate and divide his land among his three sons now if you're familiar with king lear more shakespeare you'll know that this doesn't go well especially destructive here and for good reason we learn is the terrifying wife of the warlord's oldest son she's played by mieko harada This was the first title that came to mind when we talked about this list, and the first image that came to mind from Ron was of the warlord Hidetoro, played by Tatsuya Nakadai, issuing his decision to his elaborately robed sons on this green, billowing hillside. This also is not a strong argument for monarchies. It's all about instability, warfare, chaos, really, which is what the title translates as. And much of this disorder is symbolized by Kurosawa's depiction of weather in the film. And it's captured in these static long shots that allow us to feel extremely small in the face of it. Vincent Canby is not a critic I quote a lot, but he's helpful here when I came across his New York Times review, which spoke largely in terms of weather. Ron stands above all other 1985-86 movies with the implacable presence of a force of nature, he wrote. Then speaking of the main character, like the film's vast landscapes and elaborate castles, like the apocalyptic battle scenes, and like the violent weather that accompanies its great events, Hidetora is awesome. Now, current New York Times critic A.O. Scott also has a critic's pick video on Ron, and there he describes it as one of the bleakest and harshest films I've ever seen and also one of the most staggeringly beautiful. We'll link to that video in the show notes. I saw this, I want to say in 2000, when a new 35mm print made the rounds. I'm not sure what theater it was here in Chicago. I'm almost tempted to say Ron is a movie that's not worth seeing unless you get a chance to see it on the big screen. Mm. It's just one of those films that has such an essential sense of scope. So with uh, its vision of royalty as tragedy, you really can't go wrong with Ron. No, you can't. I adore that film, though I've only seen it once and seen it on my TV at home. On your TV. It probably still worked for you. You know what? It still worked (laughs) in a major, major way. But because I knew you were going to rightfully give some love to Ron, even though that was also one of the first movies I thought of, I decided to go in a different direction and I didn't have to veer far because I can just look at another Shakespeare adaptation from Akira Kurosawa and I'm going with 1957's Throne of Blood. Nice. A lot of what you just said applies to this film. The imagery that's so stark and so memorable, even though this is in black and white, the colors of Ron are what I think of more than anything with that film and those flags flying. Here it's the black and white, but the way it's used is so evocative. Staggeringly beautiful, I feel that way about a lot of the shots in this film, and bleak and harsh as well. This is Macbeth being adapted. So if you know that storyline at all, you know there's a prophecy after this general comes back from a battle, and with... The manipulation with the help of his wife, he gets spurred to take some action to actually make the prophecies come true. And from there, things kind of unravel and don't really go well for the couple. In my notes, when I saw this movie in the context of our Kurosawa Marathon many years ago, we had just seen Rashomon and we'd seen Ikiru, movies that are very much about the frailty of the human condition and our capacity to do really bad things to each other. But those movies ultimately end on some hopeful notes, Josh. And Throne of Blood strikes me as one of those movies, a little bit like Ron, in being just about the frailty 
in just exposing the harshness and a lot of the misguided deeds that we do. And you get the sense by the end of it that it's just going to be a cycle that continues to play out. And a lot of it comes from the brutality or the starkness of the way it's shot. There's a lot of long shots. The sets are very bare. The characters are really made to look small within their environment. And I found out only later that that harkens back to the no theater that Kurosawa was trying to draw on directly because it was emerging at the same time that this movie is set around the 14th century. So a very clear formal design to Throne of Blood. And some of those shots I mentioned, there's one at the end that makes a prophecy come true. He basically figures, well, there's no way this prophecy can happen. He's never going to fail because this is unbelievable. It's unrealistic. But an army comes to life in the trees, in the forest. Amazing stuff. Gave me chills watching it on my TV, not in the theater. And another shot that just scared me, honestly, gave me a different kind of chills of the Lady Asagi, the Lady Macbeth character here, disappearing and reappearing from the dark in a really ghost-like way. It's eerie, and it's certainly one of the better adaptations of Shakespeare you'll find anywhere. Throne of Blood, my number one. And those are our top five movies about royalty. Josh, did you have any other movies you strongly considered? For sure. The Queen from Stephen Frears would have been uh, maybe number seven if I ranked these. thought about Marie Antoinette as well from Sofia Coppola. And then a few here that aren't explicitly about royalty, but still apply. Queen of Versailles, that 2012 documentary about a billionaire Florida couple who lose their money in the recession. And also My Own Private Idaho, Gus Van Sant's riff on Shakespeare. You're reading my honorable mentions again. Really? Okay. How about the tale of the Princess Kaguya from last oh, year? High up on my top how did I 10 forget list. That? Too soon to, to mention that again. I did, I did think about coming to America. Good. And also, speaking of Kate Blanchett, Elizabeth yeah. and Elizabeth the Golden Age. I like both of those. I remember loving her performance in Elizabeth. I didn't see the follow-up, but I didn't love that movie, so didn't really consider it. Some of the ones that have been mentioned. Obviously, I thought about Ron. I thought about Princess Mononoke from... Miyazaki. I thought about The Lion King and The Little Mermaid, and I'm also a fan of Brave. I like Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, and yeah, I'm too a fan of Stephen Frears of The Queen, and I like The King's Speech. I don't feel bad about right. liking The King's Speech. Should it have won Best Picture? No. No. Does it really need to be mentioned? I'm not going to hold it uh... against it. <laughs> You had harsher feelings, I guess, for it than I did. And yeah, I thought about maybe going a little bit off the beaten path, trying to be creative with something like the Queen of Versailles with it in the title. We could have spun it to make it work, but ultimately decided to be a little bit there more literal. There were plenty of straightforward ones to choose from. Yeah, and my own private Idaho, because as I've talked about way too much here on the show, especially when we made it part of our Sacred Cow discussion, it is essentially an adaptation of Henry V. So that would have been my way of sneaking in Henry V, but figured I was covered with Throne of Blood. I did also think about my favorite Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, where yeah. he is the king of the Jews. So. Well, <laughs> that's true. And what about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I mean, that I like we could have squeezed better, that one but in. Yes, you certainly could have. And here's where I completely undercut my list, which... Now that I look at it and we talked about them, I kind of like how it came out. But my regrets, the movies I haven't seen, not only includes The Last Emperor, but The Lion in Winter, A Man for All Seasons, and The Man Who Would Be King. So I could see those and probably completely throw out most of my picks. But 
it is what it is. Someday I'll get to those blind spots. Of course, we want to know your picks or we want you to just ridicule me for having not seen those films. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives and take part in round two of Film Spotting Madness. 16 actors currently remaining. Only one will survive to act another day. That's again at filmspotting.net. Out in limited release this weekend, do want to continue to highlight at the Gene Siskel Film Center, the 18th annual European Film Festival. It runs through April 2nd. And at the Music Box, it follows our friend and frequent guest, the dissolved Scott Tobias, deems it essential viewing and calls it the best American horror film since The Blair Witch Project. Oh, and I do love The Blair Witch Project. I do too. I do too. So we are very intrigued by it follows out in wide release the divergent series insurgent and the gunman this is where sean penn learns some special skills in a bid to make that neeson money and maybe he'll save africa while he's at it so we're probably going to skip the gunman we're probably going to skip the divergent series insurgent and we really want to talk about it follows but as of this very moment we aren't 100% committed to it. Not because we don't want to be just in terms of scheduling and trying to get some access. Yeah. Yeah. Access is really the question, but we may just end up seeing it like everyone else at the music box this weekend. So stay tuned to Twitter or filmspotting.net to see what we're going to review on next week's show. Film spotting is produced by golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago public media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music is by Jane Trimble. It comes from her album, In the Morning. More information is at janetrimble.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Um, okay. They are brutal. Oh, I think they're great. Come on. Come on. They're good. No, you, I, I, in all honesty. What? At, at brutal? At what? Acting? Yes. <laughs> no. I, that no. scene. I guess I'd have to see what, it. What is he, like, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to do, like, De Niro? He's I feel like he's trying to do overwrought. De Niro. Yeah. He's being a little overwrought, but I don't know. Okay. <sighs> Let's not get too sidetracked. No, let's not. Okay. Um, Let's look at this real quick.